This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. This is a day two at the Trump Doral Hotel. And uh, we are pushing the envelope on the Jason Jones Show today because checkout is in seven <laughs> minutes. But we're going to try to to sneak another interview in with uh, the great Brad Phillips, founder of the Persecution Project Foundation, one of my best friends and my hero. We're going to get an update on what is happening in Sudan with the, the largest Christian community in Sudan that Brad works with. Um, but we're going to jump right into the interview before they, they wheel us out of this place. But before we get on with the interview, I need to let you know that this episode is being brought to you by Epoch Times. If you want to be free, you have to stay informed. And with, uh, it's an exciting time. This is an ex- There's no better time to start your subscription to Epoch Times right now because as these investigations are rolling in the house, as things are heating up with the CCP, as Biden and co. are pushing for World War III uh, with Russia, now more than ever, you need to get that subscription. And if you go to iReadEpoch.com, use the code Jason Jones, your first month is only a dollar. This episode is also being brought to you by MyPillow.com. Not only is Mike Lindell our pal, our buddy, our friend, our partner, our hero, he makes the best dang pillow in the world. And when you use the code Jones at MyPillow.com, you get the best prices on all of Mike Lindell's Product, the best, the best. Now, you could use Eric Metaxas's code. You could use Steve Bannon's code. You could use, there's a lot of codes, and you'll get exactly the same. But when you use the code Jones, you know that you are standing in solidarity with our next sponsor, the Vulnerable People Project, serving the most vulnerable people in the world when the world has left. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. Become a monthly donor. Check out all of our work. But when you support, when you get your uh, pillows here and your newspapers here, you're supporting the work of the Vulnerable People Project as well. All right. On with my interview with the great Brad Phillips from the Persecution Project Foundation, The Jason Jones Show. Phillips, welcome to the show. Say that one more time. Jason, great to be with you. It's good to see you here. Okay, you and I have both been working pretty hard, and I think we each have one vocal cord left. Yeah, I need to apologize to your listeners. I'm a little bit loopy because I uh, have only been here in the U.S. for a few days, and I just came out of uh, the Nuba Mountains in Sudan, so there's about an eight-hour, seven, eight-hour time difference. Yeah, I like you for a lot of reasons. There's there's a lot of reasons I don't like you. Can I share one of the reasons I don't like you? Go ahead. So, you know, I was complaining to you. Oh, man, I just flew in from San Antonio. It was the worst flight ever. My connection was delayed. My other flight was delayed. Then we had to circle the airport for an hour and a half. And, uh, and then he was like, let me tell you my journey. You went up to me, my friend. Okay, one went, went up me. Tell, tell us how, how, how you got here. Uh, well, to uh, to get down from the Nuba Mountains takes a little bit of doing. you got to do a lot of it by road. There's no roads up there. There's no infrastructure. So traveling down from uh, our compound there in uh, Habon County, 
down to the border. In the dry season, is about 10 hours. In the wet season, it can take 20, 20 hours. Um, then you then you got to then you get across the border. And then you got to get on a an Antonov cargo plane and fly to South Sudan, and then you got to um, wait the next day and get on another plane and fly to wherever else you're going. So it's, it it took it, it takes a little bit of doing to get home. Yeah, but I bet you the United Center, the United Lounge at the Southern Court of Fun. <laughs> like, you know, the United Lounge in, in uh, Houston never has enough space for me. Yeah. And by the time I get up, the little sandwiches are gone. So well, I'm batting at the United Lounge. You know, I was thinking about Mike Lindell on this trip because okay. I didn't have one of his pillows. And uh, it really disrupted my sleep when I was laying in the, in the dirt under a mosquito net. Yeah, yeah. so we got to get you a pillow. All right, you were old friends, and I remember when I first met you, I always tell folks, you don't have to go around the world looking to serve vulnerable people, right? We all have, uh, we have a fentanyl epidemic, we have a crisis in loneliness, um, all of our families are addled with different struggles or communities or neighborhoods, and, um, and then we all have friends that in some way are connected to some great need overseas, and I've never gone looking for causes, but they kind of bump into me. And when I when I met you, of course, I'd already had a, a passion for Iraq and the Middle East. But then, um, this was over 20 years ago when we met. But just when I would meet you, the way that you would talk about the communities that you were working with in Sudan made me fall in love with Sudan. And then eventually, you brought me there. Uh, with my pal Eduardo Verastegui, who we were hanging out with last night at the super at a Super Bowl party here in Miami. Um, so you've been serving the people of Sudan now for over two decades, going back into the '90s. You've been going into Africa since you were a boy. Share with us what is why what brought you to Sudan, what eventually brought you to the Nuba Mountains, and um, and more importantly, a lot of people get enthusiastic about these great causes. But then when you're overwhelmed by the fact that this is, there's no, this is not a problem you're going to solve in your life and then go, I'm done, what's, what's kept you there? Well, let me just start off by saying I had no intention of uh, going to Sudan, really. I had no, no interest in it. Um, my dad uh, uh, was responsible for so much of my formation and education in my life, and he's somebody that um, really introduced me to Africa when I was a teenager, um, but uh, mostly Southern Africa and Angola was my interest. And then in the 90s, when I was working as, a, as what they call a hill rat on Capitol Hill in 1995, one day a 7-foot, 10-inch tall man in a purple suit walked into my office and asked me for help, and it was Minute Bull, um, who was uh, one of the first Sudanese to be drafted into the NBA, and he was somebody that I had watched when I was uh, a boy. Um, play for the for the Washington Bullets, and he'd come into my office. So Sudan started to, I guess, penetrate my consciousness then. And then in 1997, I started Persecution Project, and um, some months after that, I traveled to the Nuba Mountains. And um, again, I still really uh, didn't feel that that was where my focus was supposed to be. But you meet certain people, you meet certain heroes, um, and uh, that changed your life, and that's kind of what happened. Yeah, so I, the way I see it, I mean, he walked into a lot of offices, probably hundreds. Yeah, you know, um, he, was, he was being taken around. He had a little uh, 
Jewish lobbyist, a lady named Nancy Green, who was probably half his height. And um, he was wearing a custom. I just want to let my audience know you're allowed to call her Jewish lobbyist. Well, I am half Jewish. <laughs> but I'm not gonna... But uh but um she was, you know, it was just kind of funny to see a big uh almost 8 foot tall man walk in with a with a woman half his height. Um and she was taking him around and he was trying to he was trying to engage people on what was happening to Christians in Sudan. I had read about it a little bit, you know, my dad um like I said was my probably the most important educator in my life, an example and hero. And he gave me a clippings packet every week to read. And inside my clippings packet were his correspondence with heads of state or members of committees, newspaper clippings, newsletters, sometimes a book. Um, but there was something very important that I looked forward to reading every week, which was called FIBUS. And FIBUS was the Foreign Broadcast Information Service, which was at the time the best open source transcript that anyone could subscribe to. And you could get Sub-Saharan Africa FIBUS, Eastern Europe FIBUS, Latin American FIBUS. And, of course, my dad um, had a think tank, and he subscribed to all of them. He read all of them. He underlined them with his felt pen. And he would take the Latin America FIBUS, the Eastern Europe FIBUS, and the Sub-Saharan Africa FIBUS and stick it in my packet every week. And so if I didn't read it, I knew I was going to be quizzed at the dinner table. So I, I, that's how I developed my expertise on Africa knew, you know, he knew the things I was interested in. So he, he just sort of fed me uh, information that way. Yeah. So that was going to be my point that Minute Bowl went around, talked to hundreds of staffers. You were just, you were just a, a lowly uh, legislative aide. I right? was a lowly, lowly legislative aide. Yeah. And so he met with a lot of chiefs of staff. But what happened is what Minute Bowl didn't know is that there was fertile soil there that had been tilled by your dad since you were a little boy. That's true. And, um, and then, you know, when I actually went to the Nuba Mountains, I had a chance to meet somebody by the name of Yosef Kuameki. Yosef Kuameki was the leader of the Nuba Mountains. He, he died a few years later of cancer. But he was sort of the George Washington of the Nuba Mountains who one day woke up and realized that he was a Nuba. He wasn't an Arab. Um, he had been part of the uh, Islamization, Arabization policy and um, he had seen the marginalization and the persecution of people based on their faith, based on their ethnicity, their race, their skin color. And one day he woke up and, and realized, hey, I'm, I'm a Nuba, I'm not an Arab. Um, and, uh, and so he, he's the one who sort of led um, this uh, Nuba nationalist movement that joined forces with the southern Sudanese to fight against um, the Islamo-fascist regime in Khartoum. I want to go back to some folks who may not know who your dad is. So you talked about your dad around a think tank, and he was, you know, he was influential in my life. But can you share with us? Yeah, my my dad was Howard Phillips, and um, like I said, he he continues to be um, my hero. And um, uh, his he he went on to be with the Lord um, uh, about ten years ago. Um, but um, his. Uh, his messages to me still speak to me every day, especially when I'm getting into some kind of trouble. I can hear some words of advice from my dad. But my dad was involved in public policy, and um, he was somebody who had a real passion for freedom and for liberty and believed in in, in biblical con concepts of uh, limited constitutional government, and he dedicated his life to trying to apply those in both domestic and foreign policy issues. Um, we traveled 
all over the country together. He had resigned from the Nixon administration over corruption issues um, in 1972, I think, or 1970, I think it was 72 or 73. And then when he, when he left the Nixon administration, he visited all 435 congressional districts um, of the United States, and he brought me and some of my siblings with him on different trips because he had to travel a lot, and I was part of our education. And he also was a student of geopolitics and um, traveled all over the world. So by the time I was 20, 21, I had visited 45 countries. And um, so, as I say, he was. we were educated around the dinner table. We had... Um, you know, we had to read the Bible, we had to read biographies, we had to recite poetry, we had, we, you know, um, whatever we learned in school, we, we unlearned at the dinner table. My dad would say, what did they teach you today? And we would, we would, we would tell them whatever, whatever the topic was, and he said, well, no, that's not true. I and like how he, he didn't say, what did you learn today? Yeah. But what did they teach you today? Right. And, uh, and then, he would, then he, would, he would set the record straight on whatever the issue was, and he was always, he was a student uh, of, of life and um, of God, and, and um, he was also a teacher, and he was always teaching us and, and people in his, in his uh, sphere of influence. He was also, you know, you know, he was a thinker. He wasn't interested in politics for the sake of power. Um, he wasn't, you know, um, uh, somebody who was enamored with personalities he was somebody who who was who uh, thought deeply uh, in the formation of his views on whatever the issue might be, and he had a big impact on American government and um, on public policy. And he, of course, he had a big impact on the lives of his children and his grandchildren. You're, yeah, Howard Phillips isn't something you're going to gaslight or charm, <laughs> right? This is a guy who was down to brass tacks. Yeah, he had a lot of people that. Um, uh, loved him, and he had a lot of people that hated him. And so, he, but he had a warrior spirit, and um, and he was a, a courageous man. All right, so we only have probably about twenty minutes uh, or so to get this this briefing because we both have to go. Uh, last night, you and I were at a super. I know you're like me with this. It's uh, it's it's uh, we were. With the, uh, an elected official. By the way, I didn't even know there was a Super Bowl yesterday until you invited me to come to this event. So, I know. So thanks for that. I was with um, a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, who's, who who uh, saw a picture of you in Sudan, and she goes, wow, he looks really happy there. He <laughs> Walking around this uh, with all these big shots, Brad looks like he's in pain. And I, I said, yeah, I think it's a bit of a challenge. So last night you and I were at a Super Bowl party with beautiful, wonderful people, a lot of them very influential um, but, but, you know, I'm an introvert, believe it or not. And you know me, so you know, I am. And I, and I was thinking when I was going to this party with people who I love, like you were there and Eduardo was there and others were there, but, but I was like, man, I would just like to sit in my hotel room and listen to a book on tape or go to a used bookstore and read. Yeah. But when I was at that event, I didn't want to be there harassing people during the Super Bowl party. But I said at this, this prayer and we had mass. It was a, an unusual Super party Bowl party because we had mass right before the party. But at Mass, I had said, Lord, when they look at me, please let them see the Afghans that I serve. And the only business I have at this beautiful party with these fancy people is to serve um, the community that I work with. And I know you were thinking probably the same thing. Well, um, 
I definitely feel out of place. So, but um, but yeah, it was great to great to have a chance to meet some new people and and uh, when you when you when you go from um, a place like the Nuba Mountains, um, even going between Sudan and Kenya, you go through some sort of reverse culture shock. But then coming here to Florida in a beautiful place with beautiful people and uh, um, a different kind of comfort level, it, it, you you might think it'd be more comfortable, but it's actually a lot less comfortable. <laughs> so <laughs> it's hard to explain, but yes. So you you flew all this way to share the plight of the Nuba people, right? That's why you, you got on this, this flight. That's why you come here. Yeah, well, we have, we're, we're based here in the U.S., and I do get here to the U.S., you know, once or twice a year um, uh, for meetings with family and with, and with um, friends of, of our project. And, um, yeah, there's a lot happening right now. Um, in Sudan, it's been very confusing for people. It's always been confusing for people to understand what the issues are and what the reality is in Sudan. There's so much um, misunderstanding uh, and and deceptive headlines about what's happening in Sudan. But the last four years especially, um, things have been presented as being better when they're actually just getting worse. So... That's kind of a challenge is to try to um, keep in the forefront of people's minds the reality of what's happening, especially to the church in Sudan. Yeah, I mean, the world is unraveling, right? Yeah. The world is unraveling. Minute Bull bumped into you. You bumped into me. Now we're bumping into a lot of people all over the world. Yeah. And that's what sort of been my rule. If people ask me for help, I help. Uh, and then as I get to help a little... You get to know the community, the people, and you really want to just serve them. And then eventually you're serving them for so long, you feel like it's your community. Yeah. Well, you know, there's uh, what you discover is that you, you, you don't invest in people because you love them. You love people because you invest in them. And so the more you invest, you know, in someone or in a group of people, the more you love them. So I can see you're getting you're getting kind of emotional. So just share us with why right now why are you you're so upset? Like what what's going? You know, you've got Ukraine, you've got yep. the CCP raging, and then there you are, this little community. And I've heard you talk about the people of Sudan adoringly, but you have this special love. Like you, you say, the Nuba people are like the most unique, beautiful, wonderful people in the world. I, I would like to just you know I I assume whenever I'm on a podcast, even if I've done it before, that that there are new listeners on the show or that even most of the people on the show don't know about Sudan or remember the details. And it's, and it's, it's hard even to communicate those details because it, it is com complex, but we serve a community of Christians in an area of Northern Sudan. Sudan split into two countries in 2011 and uh, the Republic of Sudan um, that, was uh, that lost South Sudan is continues to be in an Islamic state, and um, it has uh, just a, a brief historical overview. I think is helpful. It had uh, uh, the Turkia was from the 1820s until 1881. It was called the Turkia. That was under the Ottoman Turk rule, and there rose up a Nubian by the name of Muhammad Ahmed. Um, Al-Mahdi Abdallah, and he overthrew the Turkia and established what was called a Mahdiya, 
And the Mahadiya, uh, the Mahdi is like a anointed one or Messiah. And um, he tried to set up this Mahdiya, and that was the time when General Charles Gordon was there for the Brits. And you see that, that, that the beautiful film, Three, Fe- uh, Three Feathers, Four yeah, Feathers. The Four Feathers. Four Feathers, the Mahdiya is there. Then, That's, right? That is set at that time. And um, so Gordon was killed by the Mahdi. And then Kitchener came in and killed the Mahdi, and then the British reestablished the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan, and they it was sort of their uh, under their administration until 1955. Now, in 1956, January 1, when Sudan became independent, these Islamist forces that are basically an extension of the Sudanese Muslim Brotherhood of the Al-Ansar sect, which were supportive of the, of the Mahdiya, the Khatamiya sect, these Islamist forces sort of emerged as the real power base in Sudan. And there have been many different turnovers in name changes in regime, but essentially it's been the Islamic movement that's been in charge in Sudan from 1956 up to now. And um, most famously, in 1989, there was a group called the National Islamic Front, which came in and they announced this Ingaz, which is an Islamic revolution. And, uh, and it was led by uh, a, an indicted war criminal named Omar al-Bashir and a Muslim cleric by the name of Hassan al-Turabi. And Hassan al-Turabi was a very famous, enlightened, progressive Islamist, Muslim Brotherhood person who teamed up with Bashir. And he, they came in and they, they... You're calling him enlightened and progressive. Yes, this is from this the is point satire. of view. Of, this, is, this is how he's been described. You know, he was a sorbonne-educated sore intellectual. Um, and within the Islamic community, they called him progressive. From our point of view, um, he was a radical Islamist. So they came in and they imposed even more strictly Sharia law. And uh, then in 2018, there was a popular uprising. And then eventually, in April of 2019, Bashir was removed by other members of the Islamic movement, and one of his in-laws was put in his place, a guy named Al-Fatah al-Burhan. And his lieutenant, um, who is a, a Darfur um, resigate, um, John Jaweed founder, a guy named Mohammed Hamdan uh, Daglo, is the vice president. So, so that's two, what the Janjaweed is. Yeah, so one war criminal, one Islamist war criminal was replaced by two other Islamist war criminals who were formerly his lieutenant. So but they're he, stalking horses, really. Yes, and, but, in, uh, but according to the world, there was big change. Meanwhile, the state security, the Janjaweed, which has been renamed and rebranded as the Rapid Support, support Tell, Force. So explain came, to folks what the Janjaweed is. So the Janjaweed, which literally means the devil's on horseback, was, was a Darfuris group of militias. It's the name which, which uh, has been applied to, to many different militias, not only the one of, of Hameti, of Muhammad Hamdan Daglo Hameti, but other, other militias that were used by Omar al-Bashir and his lieutenant, Muhammad uh, al-Fatah al-Burhan, uh, to carry out attacks all over Sudan, in southern Sudan, in Darfur, in eastern Sudan, and basically commit acts of genocide and war crimes and so on and so forth. 
to carry out his divide and rule tactics to, to, to keep power in Sudan. So, so these, so one war criminal was replaced by two war criminals. Meanwhile, the worldwide uh, community said, "Ah, there's we've gotten rid. The wicked witch is dead. We've gotten rid of uh, Bashir. Now everything is okay." But in fact, for the last four years, things have gotten worse and worse, especially for religious freedom and for Christians in Sudan. And the world has moved on. Even the church has moved on. You know, one of the reasons, Brad, I've I've not quit in Afghanistan is to see what happened with the Lost Boys. Yeah, right. We we as a community, the church. I'm talking about the church. Broadly speaking, baptized Christians, all ecclesial communities, Catholics, Protestants, da da da. We get these, we get in these enthusiasms. Sudan was the bell of the ball. I say there's in human rights work. There's always Palm Sunday, and then there is uh, Good Friday. You, you got involved in Sudan more around Holy Thursday. <laughs> you were there before Palm Sunday, but then all of a sudden, the whole world was paying attention to Sudan. And then we just got bored. Yeah, a lot. Like Eighteen years ago, I did. We leave. Did we stop paying attention? How long ago? Well, no. It's you know, it's in fits and starts. There's 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 different times when it comes back into people's consciousness. But for example, you know, uh, I remember when uh, the Saudis uh, uh, said that women could get a driver's license, and everybody celebrated as if that meant that there was an end to Sharia law. Similar type of things happen in Sudan. You know, they have more than 180 Sharia laws on the books. But during the last four years, five laws were repealed. One of them had to do with celebrating Christmas. And so everybody says, oh, there's religious freedom. It's in the Constitution. But what they don't understand is that the framework of government is still established by these clerics um, that issue these fatwas that are the, rash, the, that are the legal and spiritual rationale for genocide uh, mass murder, mass rape, and all of the other war crimes that they're committing on a daily basis in that country, which we ignore. So you say the fits and starts. When was the last time did you did you feel folks were paying attention? Well, again, so when when it was big news uh, for Bashir to be removed, mm -hmm. and um, you know uh, that big news was made of that, and. You know, it was actually the Saudis, the Egyptians, and the Emiratis that rescued the establishment in Sudan in the last four years. And we helped um, rescue the establishment because we are um, allowing uh, our relationship in, uh, with Saudi, I think, to inform a lot of our policy and rather than developing our own policy based on our own interest or based on our own values. So during that time in... Uh, in, night, in uh, 2018, there was a massive popular uprising. It was a chance to basically tear down the system. But instead of being on side with the people who went to the street, we got on side with the establishment. And as a result, they're still there, and they're still committing war crimes. Is that because of laziness of state de the State Department? Is it because they're easy to, for other nation states to manipulate, or is there something more nefarious? Um, I think there's there's probably more than one answer to that qu question, and and so I, I I don't want to try to answer that question except to say that there is there's obviously dis different factions and interests within the U.S. government, and there's different factions and interests out there um, involved on the issue of Sudan. Of course, the Saudis, the Egyptians, and the Emiratis are have been leading on this. 
and uh, and we we haven't really been we haven't really been in, paying attention the way we should. But in in, in uh, they they established this. There was a transitional military council that came in, and it was a repeat. If we knew any of the history of Sudan, we would have seen that what happened between 2018 up to now is an almost identical repetition of what happened in 1985 because you had a guy named Gaffar Nimieri, whose attorney general, by the way, was Hassan El-Turabi. Hassan El-Turabi was the guy that came in in 1989. And Hassan El-Turabi was an extension of the Muslim Brotherhood who established the Islamic Charter Front that eventually became the National Congress Party that became the National Islamic Front. That was a split-off originally from the Sudan Muslim Brotherhood. So he came in, and in the 70s, when Namiri um, switched allegiance from communism to, to Islam, the communists tried to assassinate Namiri in 1972. So he said, oh, I guess I'm not a good communist. I better become a Muslim again. So he brought Hassan el-Tarabi out of prison, and he made him his attorney general. And Hassan el-Tarabi said, you know, if you want to be a really good Muslim, there's, a, there's like 88 laws on your books that don't conform with Sharia law. And so he made him the attorney general. And between the late 70s and 1983, they began imposing Sharia all over Sudan, which the people didn't like. And then in 1983, um, the war known as Inyanya II started. And then in 1985, like 2018, there was a massive popular uprising in Khartoum. And in 1985, like 2018, the Islamic community behind the scenes created a transitional military council in 1985. And they said, we, are, we hear you. We hear the street. We hear your complaints. But we need to preserve stability until such time that we can have elections. So they had elections in 1986. And they elected the brother-in-law of Hassan al-Turabi, who happens to be the, the great-grandson of the Mahdi, and his name was Sadiq al-Mahdi. He's the leader of the biggest Islamist movement in Sudan, known as the Al-Ansar sect. And he came in under the false pretense of being against Sharia. He said, these Sharia laws are not worthy of the ink that the paper is printed on. So everybody thought he was going to tear down the Sharia laws of Nimiri. And so he got 80% of the vote, his Uma party, um, got 80% of the vote, and he became the youngest uh, prime minister in 1986. And then he was a placeholder for his brother-in-law, Tarabi and Bashir, until 1989, when he handed over to them, and the National Islamic Front came to power. So what's happening now is almost an identical repeat of that, where the Islamic community, to, um, in response to a massive popular uprising, where people said, we, we're, we've had enough. We have enough of Sharia law. We've had enough of this Islamofascist system. We want our freedom. We want democracy. They said, okay, just give us some time, but let's preserve order. And the Saudis came in, the Emiratis came in, the Egyptians came in, even the American government um, came in and said, let's preserve stability. So they, they let the tea out of the teapot. Uh, teapot. Yeah. They, let that, they let the steam out of the teapot. Yep. So, so, so meanwhile, the same <clears throat> evil, wicked war criminals are in charge. And, um, and, and in fact, there is more murdering, killing, raping, displacing, and acts of genocide happening now than ever before in Sudan. And we're silent. Okay. So for Act 3 of the show, 
um, tell us what we can do. Tell us what the immediate needs are of our, our the Christian community well, in New Mountains. Well, we work. We work. Uh, um, I apologize for taking you guys around on a long story, but we we work. Brad, in this a, show the, the audience listens. They love this stuff. We we They're work in a it. in a region called the Nuba Mountains, Southern Kordofan. The two original indigenous groups in Sudan are the Nubians and the Nubans, and the Nubans are descended from the Nubians, and the Nubans were chased away by the radical Muslims between the 6th and the 15th century. And they ended up in Kordofan, and they forgot their connection with the church and with God. But from the beginning of the 20th century, missionaries came back, and between 1917 and today, from zero to three million Nubans out of five million Nubans now identify as Christians, Catholic and and Protestant. So they were, they were Christian in the 6th, 7th, 8th century? They were Christian back to the... Third, fourth century, they were they were originally Coptic Christians. They were even some claim they go back to the first century. They were part of those kingdoms, those Nubian kingdoms that Ethiopia was part of as well. Um, that were they some claim goes back to the Ethiopian eunuch that was converted by the Apostle Philip. So um, they have a long history and it's embedded in their culture, it's embedded in their language, and that relationship with the church was resurrected in the last hundred years. And so now you have more than you got about three million. Identifies Christian. Anytime you hear about persecution in Sudan, in North Sudan, nine times out of ten, it's either a Nuba Christian or somebody from another ethnicity that was brought to Christ by a Nuba Christian. That's why they are the target of the regime. That's why the regime wants to wipe them out. And so we are working. You asked, what can we do? We're working at that community in Kordofan, and the population is tripled in the last 10 years, not because of birth rates, but because people are fleeing other parts of Sudan back to Kordofan to seek a safe haven. Kordofan is the size of the state of Georgia. It's the size of Rwanda and Burundi combined. 17 of the 19 counties in Kordofan are controlled by the rebels. They're not really rebels, but they're called rebels by the government. I'm not really a criminal, but I'm called a criminal by the government. We work in those 17 counties. We're supplying medicine to 200 medical facilities and seven rural hospitals. The newest hospital that we hit, we are personally responsible for sponsoring is in a region called Umdurain, where half of those 3 million people have access to it. And so we have a 20-acre facility that's seeing 3,000 patients a month. Um, but we need help. Um, we are supplying 80% of all the medicine that goes into the Nuba Mountains, but that 80% represents about 25% of what's actually needed because the population has exploded. And the population has exploded because of the murdering, the killing, the raping, and the wicked activity that's happening in other parts of Sudan. That's unbelievable. And, and you've, you've shared with us on the show before that there are Nuba who are animists, there are Nuba who are Muslim, yeah. but that they... they, they they get along fine and that the Islamists are going after the Muslim Nuba because they know they're not, they can't be radicalized. The whole Sudan crisis, you know, Dr. Grang was a friend of mine. He was the leader of, uh, of the SPLA, one of the founders of the SPLA. He and Yosef Kuameki worked together. Tell us what the SPLA is. The Sudan people's liberation army. And they started off as a liberation movement until Dr. Grang became a Christian. And the majority of the people in the SPLA identify as Christian. Um, but there are many Muslims or many animists. By liberation, when you mean they were Marxists? Or? That's right. They were originally supported by Mengistu in Ethiopia, who was a Marxist. Um, but in the 90s, there was a transformation that took place in Dr. Grang's heart and life. And he began 
crusading for religious freedom. And what's happening in Nuba is the leadership of the Nuba, who still identifies as a Muslim, um, is probably the best advocate for the church and for religious freedom in all of Sudan, but especially in the Nuba Mountains. That's beautiful. Say that one more time. A lot of my audience is Muslim. So say that one more time. Yeah, we serve Muslims, Christians, and animists in the Sudan. We work through the church, Catholics and Protestants, in, this, in the Nuba Mountains um, to serve those communities. Many, many, many people are leaving Islam. They're leaving their pagan background because of the love of Christ being demonstrated to them by their neighbors who are from the Nuba Mountains. So, um, so yeah, there's some incredible things happening. But, but um, you said that they're the Muslim... Yeah, the, so the leader of the, of, the, of the resistance, the biggest threat, to Islamo-fascist tyranny in Sudan is, a, is, is my friend Abdulaziz Adam al-Hilo. Abdulaziz Adam al-Hilo, you wouldn't think, is one of the most pro-Christian Muslims you've ever met in your entire life. Um, but he ha- he's the one who has provided a space for Christians and Muslims and animists in the Nuba Mountains. Not to be terror. Maybe he's just the most pro-don't-terrorize human beings. Well, he, he understands, he understands that 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 the source of of tyranny and 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 the thing that is killing his uh, the Nuba people is this radical Islamist philosophy that dom the, the Islamic movement the policies of the Islamic movement in Khartoum. Okay, we got about five minutes. Give us maybe real direct. I know that the Vulnerable People Project we're supporting you a little bit, the best of our ability right now. We appreciate it. And, and, uh, but I've committed to helping you finish this hospital. And yes. Afghanistan's been a big, big, um, big, bigger burden, longer burden than we'd expected. But uh, so to share with us the immediate needs of your work and um, yeah, how people listening can help. Yeah, well, again, a big part of our work is medical. We're also involved in water providing, making access to clean water. We're also involved in relief and shelter. And we're, when we distribute about 20,000 scriptures a year to support the church, we sponsor workshops and conferences. Right now, in the medical area uh, where, we, where we started, because we saw that um, people were dying because they didn't have access to, to medical care. Um, we have a hospital in a place called Umdurain County, Jageba Referral Hospital, and there's some tremendous needs there. We've launched a capital campaign to expand um, the services at that hospital, including a radiology ward. We've completed a number of other wards. Um, there's so much more that we can do there. Um, and if people want to help us, they can go to nubahospital.com and find out. Nubahospital.com. You know, um, there's so many great organizations to, to, for us to support. And this audience is engaged in a lot of issues. But I founded VPP and really even got to see, look at your work, and it gave me, gave me something to model our work after. And I know that there's not a, a, an organization that has a better reputation for how it uses its donor money. And it's going to truly, as we say with VPP, we want to support the most vulnerable people in the world where no one else will. There you are in the Nuba Mountains supporting millions of Christians who are in a fight for their life. And um, we have a friend who wrote a book. And in, um, uh, the gentleman uh, who wrote that book about 
supporting the persecuted church. He's from Florida. Do you know what I'm talking about? And he has a quote in his book. Where he, he reminds us in the book that in Paul's letters, 70% of the time he tells us to tithe, it's to the persecuted church. And part of the problem is we feel like we're persecuted. And we are. I mean, let's let's not, it's not, not to diminish. Yeah. I mean, I have in the past two years been handcuffed and shoved into a police car. And yeah. I've seen my friends like Steve Bannon in handcuffs on, on you know, the cover of the New York Times. Whenever I'm feeling like I'm persecuted, the best therapy for me is to go and visit the Duma Mountains. And that's what I was going to say, that what we're afraid can happen in this country in 20, 30, 40, 50 years as well gone blown past what's happening in the Nuba Mountains. Yeah. But it's, what's 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 really exciting though, Jason, you know, you go to a place like that and you expect uh, to come out um, you know, depressed or disappointed or whatever, but what you find is some um, especially among the church is some really joyful people with a grateful spirit and um, an indomitable spirit who are praising God in their circumstances. And um, so that's what keeps you there. You know, beginning of this podcast, you asked me, what are you doing there? What keeps you there? What keeps you there is the joy of believers there who are overcoming in spite of some really, really difficult circumstances. Pray God. So give us the website one more time. Nubahospital.com. It's persecutionproject.org and nubahospital.com if you want to find out about this campaign. And do you have any, you guys, I saw your points there. Is there any points we, we didn't get to you want to share? There's a lot of points, but I think um, just the main thing to remember is to, that we're all part of one body as believers, and when one part of the body suffers, all suffer with it. So we need to be praying daily for our persecuted family, not only in Sudan, but around the world. Do they pray for us? I mean, you're with them. Do they? They do. I just, we just had a great um, pastor's conference and Christian leaders conference and it was it was just incredible to hear some of the testimonies, um, but also just you know, yeah, participate with them in prayer. They're they're praying for us all the time, and um, it's just wonderful. It's a privilege for us to fellowship with the body of Christ. Amen. Well, we look forward to seeing you. Hopefully, I'll be visiting you this year. Please come in the Newman Mountains. All right. Um, sorry for the rush show. I mean, this is a forty-one minute show. I have these experts that email me and say, Jason, you got to keep your show to 30 minutes. There's no way. This has been 45 minutes, and I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface. This should have been a two- or three-hour show. But I have one more meeting and a flight to catch. You got to say something, Brad. <laughs> you leaned in. All right, this episode has been brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the most vulnerable people in the world when the world is left. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. Become a monthly donor. We're halfway to our goal with monthly donors to know that every month we can meet our obligations. Halfway there to know we'll meet our obligations. Right now, we don't know. Right now, every month, we do not know if we will meet our monthly obligations. If you go to thegreatcampaign.org and give us your best gift every month, um, I know that in the next six, six months or so, I think we're going to hit our goal. This episode is also being brought to you by I Read, or by Epoch Times. Go to ireadepoch.com, use the code Jason Jones, and you get that first month for only a dollar. Now I have one chord left in my voice. I've been talking on it like a trained professional. But I, I think that last chord is about to bust. So I'm going to wrap this thing up and head to the airport. All right. This has been Jason Jones, Brad Phillips from The Persecution Project. Until next time.
Jason Jones Show. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Mudhouse Media.